One day I walked in my classroom to my antebellum American literature class, getting ready to teach Anne Bradstreet's Contemplations, published after her death in 1678. But the students said, what are you going to teach us today? And I said, I don't know. What do you want to learn? And one of them said, I want you to teach us about Lester Young. So I did. I was getting ready to teach them about a poet who died 300 years before them. But when they asked about a jazz musician who died 30 years before they were born, I couldn't lay off that pitch. Lester Young was born in Woodville, Mississippi in 1909. He was born close to Milt Hinton, the jazz bassist I mentioned uh, in my last podcast, and Eudora Welty. Um, he came up through Count Basie's orchestra. Bill Basie's big band was a training ground for a lot of great soloists and a lot of people who uh, who went on to become you know, prominent in jazz. Uh, I mean, you know, Bill Basie was certainly prominent in jazz himself. He was a, a really interesting guy, and he kept his band going into the 1980s, so a lot of people really uh, know who Count Basie was. But Lester Young uh, probably did his best work in the 1930s, and often with Billie Holiday. Even when they were doing pop tunes and some things... Uh, that, uh, you know, we're kind of attempting to cross over. He had moments of brilliance. The interplay between the two is great. He really was a great ensemble player as well as a great um, soloist. And, and in the sort of like hard-driving, competitive world of jazz, uh, he was a, an alternative to that in a way, though he also, you know, held his own in those in those late night jam sessions too. There are stories um, that Mary, Mary Lou Williams, the great pianist, tells about those cutting sessions when, when Coleman Hawkins, who was the reigning king of the tenor saxophone in his time, ran into a young, a young Lester Young and uh, really sort of like saw what he was all about. And Lester made his reputation in that, and yet he preferred a, a gentler side of jazz, and he became really influential to jazz players in the 50s and in the 60s, uh, and through cool jazz, and he really sort of defined cool, not just as a style of laid-back playing that slurred notes and phrases across bar lines and stretched things out, but also in his appearance, he was famous for wearing this uh, wide-brimmed pork pie Stetson hat and uh, wearing fancy clothes, long coats, with wide lapels, zoot suits. In fact, he's credited with uh, coining the term cool to mean really great. A term we all kind of still use, which I think is interesting. He's, he's maybe second to Louis Armstrong in the amount of the... Uh, of the jazz cant, or the argot of jazz, um, that he coined. Um, and he was a great talker. There are some wonderful, unfiltered interviews with Lester Young. <laughs> he worked in profanity 
as some of the Italian masters worked in stone. Lester Young's uh, influence was definitely wide-ranging, is probably still around um, in the jazz world, but he is uh, primarily known, and rightly so, uh, through his association with Billie Holiday. They did some of their first and some of their last sessions together. Uh, interestingly, Mill Tinton uh, was there for their last session together and for Billy's last session, which actually was not um, with Lester. Uh, and there are photographs of it that you can see. Um, neither one of them is looking too good. I would say the last great performance that they did together, and it was in 1957, within a couple of years of their death, there was a TV show called The Sound of Jazz, and they did a version of her song, Fine and Mellow, that she'd recorded in the 30s. And it's really um, a fascinating document, sort of, uh, you know, visually, in, in addition to being a really great, uh, in addition to being a really great performance overall. One of the things that I think is, is, uh, is smart about the way it's put together visually is that uh, well so first of all the the two saxophone solos are together and and uh, Coleman Hawkins the you know I guess I guess the rival for great tenor of his age along with Lester um, you know they're sort of positioned as opposites um, but the first solo is by Coleman Hawkins and he plays a great solo. Um, but when Lester takes a solo right after him, it's so, uh, it benefits so much by the contrast of their styles. So often in, not just in jazz and improvisational music, um, people get caught up in trying to out the other guy, the other guy. You know, if the guy's fast, you try to be faster. <laughs> and, uh, and it kind of devolves into an empty, empty show of virtuosity. Um, now I'm not talking about there being an interplay, which I think is really is really useful and really interesting. But the thing that that we see in Fine and Mellow in this recording is that uh, Lester Young clears the air with this beautiful little phrase, bum 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 bum, picks up a vocal line that Billie Holiday sings before and just sort of reframes the solo on his terms and plays a great uh, melodic lyrical solo like he like he is known to do. And uh, the thing that I think is really great about the, the, the film, the document, the performance, is that shows Lester starting off that phrase and playing a couple of bars, and then it pans over to Billy, and it really focuses on her her, not on him. Uh, and she's sort of like, I mean, she's clearly thinking that it's great, right? And uh, and her reaction is sort of teaching us that, you know, there are a lot of good instrumentalists here playing good solos, but Lester's the one that got it right. And she really seems to signal that to us. I think, I mean, I think it's very genuine and very authentic and it's beautiful, but it also references an earlier film that Lester Young starred in called Jamming the Blues. 
that I like to teach and like to think about and think is really wonderful. And it is uh, on its own a fantastic and, and fascinating uh, cultural document as well as an enjoyable performance. Jamming the Blues was a, a short jazz film uh, that traveled as a short film, uh, you know, to the theaters, which was kind of interesting. I mean, for one thing, it was interesting because in 1944, uh, you know, American theaters were segregated in much of the country, and uh, it showed an integrated band, which you could have in New York, but you certainly couldn't have had in Mississippi where, where Lester Young was born. And yet, uh, the integrated band film traveled to those places. It traveled with To Have and Have Not, um, the great Bogart film, which is a fascinating film on its own. I mean, you know, it's a kind of an anti-war film during the war, and it was written by Ernest Hemingway, but the screenplay was written by William Faulkner, who sort of out Hemingway's Hemingway in the script, if you ask me, but that's a different story. But anyway, it was such a widely seen film because, uh, you know, Jamming the Blues was such a widely seen film because it circulated with this Oscar-nominated, uh, you know, uh, great Humphrey Bogart film. Uh, so it exposed a lot of people to a side of jazz that they really hadn't seen. In 1944, even though, you know, the bebop scene is emerging and jazz as a sort of high art form is developing, it's still pretty much seen as dance music, and, uh, you know, the American listening public still pretty much just sees the swing era as, uh, as definitive of what, um, of what jazz entertainment is. It was directed by a guy named Jijon Millet, who was a, a Life magazine photographer, a very influential Life magazine photographer. And he did a photo spread in Life, um, you know, called Jam Session that had... Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday was actually there, um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the greats of jazz, and, and it's really kind of a fascinating, um, you know, photo essay on its own that you can find online, but, um, but Jamming the Blues uh, pretends to be a, a documentary film of a jam session. It, it starts out, there's a voiceover that says, you know, uh, you know, this is a jam session. <laughs> Quite often, these great artists get together and play hot music. And uh, and then what you get instead is this incredibly stylized film that presents not a swing band playing for dancers, but great artists making great art. This is well before we're thinking of jazz as America's classical music, you know. And, uh, and the, the setup for that is brilliant, too, because in that, in that voiceover where it says quite often these great artists, uh, we see uh, what looks like a phonograph record spinning around, uh, and it looks like a shot over the top of a, of a phonograph, but we're pretty sure it's not because there's a little thin line of smoke that's rising over it, and it's, it's pretty clear that the record, quote-unquote, is set on edge and not flat. And uh, when it says uh, great artists, turns out to be Lester's pork pie hat. He tilts his head slowly up. Doesn't even look at the camera. He's indifferent to it. He's too cool to care whether you think he's cool or not, you know. And, uh, 
And it's sort of, I think the image is sort of like, I'm going to show you what is behind a record. You get a record as a cultural artifact and you put it on, but this is the context of it that it's made by great artistry. And the scene in it that kind of rhymes with the scene in Fine and Mellow um, is where Lester... Uh, sits down and he looks at Marie Bryant, who is the, the vocalist, and she's kind of a stand-in for uh, Billie Holiday, who was unavailable during that time. Billie Holiday was having a rough time throughout the 40s. Well, I mean, throughout her life, frankly, but but uh, she probably was unavailable, but they had Marie Bryant, who was also a really fine vocalist and, and dancer. She actually was more famous as a dancer later on, and uh, she taught... Uh, Marlon Brando, among other Hollywood stars, how to dance. I mean, it's not too much of a stretch to say part of Brando's success in film was that he learned the essence of black movement from Marie Bryant. Um, she, he studied with her before he did Streetcar Named Desire and then The Wild One right after that, and that both of those films, particularly Streetcar, catapulted him into a level of fame that that, you know, uh, hardly any other male, uh, you know, male sex symbol, uh, you know, uh, leading men type had ever reached before. Um, but anyway, they have a similar exchange where when she's singing, Lester sits down, he lights a cigarette and he's tapping his foot and it's like, yeah, what she's doing is great. And then, and then when he takes his solo, they trade places and it shows uh, Marie Bryant admiring Lester Young. And, and I think also that, that, that maybe is even more self-conscious in Jamming the Blues than it is in, uh, in Fine and Mellow, where it's just a live, it is, a, it is the document of a live performance. Um, they really contrast styles, uh, and, and the style of solos are, are, are very distinct from each other um, you know, within the same song. So the other tenor player, for instance, is a guy named Illinois Jaquette, who is a really cool player. I, I really like him. He he lived until not too many years ago. He was a an important jazz educator, a great jazz citizen, a cool guy. But he did a lot of honking and overblowing, overblowing where you 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 make the reed distort and it sounds almost like an electric guitar and honks, squeals, and he really kind of invented the vocabulary of R&B or rock saxophone as it became iterated in the in the 1950s um, so again like the contrast to the to the smooth serpy um, you know floating style of Lester Young couldn't have been more pronounced and yet they are both sort of like contribute uh, with integrity to the same performance I think really like Lester's sensitivity to an appreciation and and uh, uh, of other artists and also his conviction in his own style and not following people into theirs uh, really define him. And I think it also probably comes from his long association with Billie Holiday, with... Uh, Mary Lou Williams with other female artists who were probably, he was probably learning a different model of artistry than the competitive male model that he was raised in from these women, I want to suggest.
You know, jazz musicians during the war were often, they were on the road a lot and they would sort of try to dodge the draft board um, or stay one step ahead of it. There were certain towns that they would get, that they were leery to go into because they'd get picked up by the draft board. And uh, that eventually happened to Lester Young. He and Joe Jones, his drummer, uh, got picked up by the draft board in Los Angeles when they were on the road out in California. You know, the reality for white musicians when they were drafted was that they would be given bands to lead, uh, you know, or, or could play in bands. I mean, you know, musicians of half Lester Young's stature and talent were given bands to lead during the war. And, uh, and black musicians were usually pressed into regular service. And so, you know, there was, <laughs> there was every incentive to avoid that kind of thing. And Lester was treated horribly in the in the military. He was kind of a sensitive and retiring guy anyway. And and a lot of writers have talked about the way his mannerisms were sort of a cover for his uh, I don't know his unwillingness to uh, be confrontational or assertive or violent. So the military was a terrible place for a guy like that, and he wouldn't you know, found himself in trouble. He was also in, in terrible physical condition because, you know, he all he did was sit around and drink and smoke cigarettes and play music. Um, and so he had a hard time in the army and there's often a theory that he never played well again. And and that film, Jamming the Blues, was, was recorded shortly before he, uh, he was uh, picked up. He and and Joe Jones were in Basie's orchestra again at the time, and uh, and their engagement was uh, was cut short by being picked up by the draft board. Um, but anyway, the one thing that cuts against that reading a little bit is that after he got out, he did what I think is his best record on his own as a leader, and it's the Lester Young Trio with Buddy Rich, who I don't really like Buddy Rich, uh, you know, in general. He seems just so interested in his own virtuosity that he's that it's the Buddy Rich show. But Lester's really got him on a leash, and he does what I think is his best playing on here. And then the great jazz pianist, Nat King Cole. Nat Cole, you can't blame him for wanting to be a star, and you can't blame record companies for wanting him to do more pop-oriented material and take advantage of that voice because that voice is something, you know. Um, but but Nat King Cole was moving into being famous at that point. Uh, and he was also under contract for a different uh, label, and so he had to be billed as I Guy on the recording. It was done by Norman Grants, the great jazz producer. Norman Grants was probably interested in doing it for a lot of different reasons, but it... It was an album that was not really well uh, promoted or received, um, but I think that it's Nat Cole's best playing. In his trio, he was so heavily uh, supported harmonically by a bass player and his great guitar player, Oscar Moore, uh, that you don't hear the full range of his, of his accompaniment, um, I think, in the way that you do with this stripped down trio with just drums and saxophone. So it's an album to check out if you're, if you're um, interested in Lester Young. Um, I think these three things, you know, the, um, the performance of fine and mellow jamming the blues and the Lester Young trio records are a really great record or a really great way into 
Lester Young, which I guess is why I presented them to my class at that time. And I think that if you're interested in jazz um, a little bit, then Lester Young's a really good starting point. And if you're interested in jazz a lot, there's a lot more depth to Lester Young than might meet the eye. And you might already love him. I don't know. I do. Anyway, there's a little story about Lester and my experience with having a great day in the classroom. So I hope that uh, you found that interesting. I, I'm on a kick about um, folks from Mississippi for some reason. I don't know why. Okay, friends, take care of yourselves. Be well. Um, and I'll see you again next Wednesday. Thanks for listening.